0: either a print copy or on your mobile device, Uh, please open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We'll begin our time this morning with just three verses there in Hebrews 10. Uh, Those are verses 23 through 25. While you're turning there, I I don't normally do this at the start of messages, but just wanted to highlight two opportunities for ministry. Uh, The first is a program that we... Uh, partnered with this past year for the first time. It's a program through Wake Forest University just down the road. Uh, It's called the Friendship Families Program, and it is uh, essentially an adoptive student program uh, designed uh, principally to introduce international students to uh, American life and culture and help them to get acclimated to the area and to basically have a family who can encourage them and spend time with them And uh, we did this this past year. It was a wonderfully fruitful opportunity uh, for us to draw some international students into uh, our homes, into our small groups, into our worship services. And so if you think that's something you might be interested in and learning more about, please talk to me after the service or talk to Brad Kinnison, one of our pastoral assistants, and he'd be happy to connect you uh, to who you need to talk to. Uh, And then the second opportunity for ministry is that we do have some openings and needs in serving the children of our church in uh, the Sunday school ministry, uh, in the K through around 6th grade. And so if you're interested in in teaching on Sunday mornings at the 915 Sunday School, uh, please, again, either talk to me or you can talk to Andrea Allen, who is uh, our Sunday school coordinator, uh, if you're interested in serving in that way. So just wanted to keep those ministry opportunities before you. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's go to God in prayer together. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, if we are not aware already, if we are not cognizant by now, impress upon us in these moments that we are in the presence of the living God and we are before the Word of the living God. We pray that our hearts and our minds would respond accordingly. We pray, Father, that as we consider what Your Word has to say this morning, that you would speak to each and every heart gathered here. We ask these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. Psychologists, medical professionals, scholars and academics in the United States have recently been discussing a statistic. The statistic is alarming, it's disturbing, and somewhat perplexing. The statistic forces us as Americans to confront some very painful realities and to answer some extremely uncomfortable questions. The statistic I'm referring to is the life expectancy rate in the United States, which has declined for the third year in a row, the longest consecutive decline in that statistic since I think 1918. While the causes behind this disturbing trend are probably not fully understood or appreciated, but it is widely believed that the most significant contributor to this decline in life expectancy is the growing suicide rate in the United States. Uh, people, both young and old, are choosing to take their lives with alarming frequency. It's possible, and maybe it's not true, but it's at least possible. That every adult in this room knows someone personally who has taken their own life. Well, what does this trend, this trend, say about us as a society? Probably lots of things. And probably lots of things I'm not qualified in my vocation to address. But if you know anything about suicide, if you've studied it at all, you'll know that one of the primary reasons people take their own lives is because. They feel a complete lack of hope. Uh, They feel darkness crowds in around them, and despair and discouragement is all they see, and there's no hope, there's no light. They'll often use that language of light and darkness, and so they take their own lives. Suicide is a symptom of hopelessness. Uh, Hopelessness is in increasing supply in our day and age, and this hopelessness has more symptoms Uh, than just the retreating life expectancy rate. Uh, We're hopeless with respect to our politicians and world leaders, who I think we could safely say have never been looked upon in the history of this country with more cynicism and mistrust. I'm talking about Republicans and Democrats at every level across the board. We're hopeless with respect to technology and its ability to actually provide us with better mental health and a more stable social landscape. Uh, Despite the uh, advances made on the technological front, uh, people feel more isolated than ever, and they feel more impersonal than ever. Uh, Our society is growing ever more hopeless as to how to really solve the most fundamental maladies that plague human nature. Uh, I would argue that most people today have less faith in quote, the human spirit, uh, than they had even a century ago. And in the early 1900s, there was a growing movement known as the progressivist movement. Uh, Progressivism was marked by an optimistic anthropology. That is uh, boundless optimism with respect to mankind and human nature. Human nature is getting better, the progressivists said. The world is making progress. Our human limitations are vanishing around us and the future is bright. Boundless optimism and hope with respect to the ability of human intelligence and ingenuity and the human spirit to solve the world's problems. Steadily over the last century, many have come to realize that progressivism was basically a bag of beans. Far from emancipating humankind from its limitations has only served to alert us all the more of our human finitude and frailty. All of these things are symptoms of a world which lacks any real and discernible hope. The signs are everywhere around us. The world is not basically, fundamentally, by default, a hopeful place. The world is basically a hopeless place and is only becoming more hopeless year after year. But I'm not talking about the world now in these moments. I want to talk to you I sincerely wish to ask each and every soul that entered this room this morning, regardless of what's going on out in the world, do you have hope? Do you have hope? And if so, in what or in whom do you hope? What is the ground or the basis of your hope? Is it solid? Is it firm? Does your hope provide you with a reason to live and far more importantly a reason to die? Does your hope include a solution for sin and for malice and for evil in the world? And more importantly, does your hope provide you yourself with forgiveness and salvation from your own sins and your own inner demons? Now, we've been in a series of sermons over the last several weeks entitled, The Happy Church. And you might be saying at this point, well, you're not doing a good job in this series because you're just bumming us out with all this talk about hopelessness. In some ways, that's the point. I believe that the world is basically a hopeless place, but the church is not. We as the church are the stewards of hope, and we have real, lasting, unfading, undying hope to give to the world. There is an answer to the hopelessness that surrounds us. There is hope for hopelessness people, and I want to talk about that hope this morning uh, in this message. So this morning in our ongoing series on the happy church, a series on church life and dynamics among the church body that create a happy, God-honoring, healthy church environment, uh, now this morning I'd like to talk about Christian hope, what it is, and how we can nurture hope in the context of this local church. So I'd like to articulate the following principle. Uh, The happy church is the church that abounds in hope. The happy church is the church that abounds in hope. So two main headings this morning, uh, two questions really. The first is, what is Christian hope? What is Christian hope? And how can we as a local church abound in Christian hope? So consider with me first, what is Christian hope? Well, it's not hope uh, for pie in the sky. It's not wishful thinking. If we're going to understand Christian hope, biblical hope, we're going to have to consider uh, how the Bible uses that language. It's very different from the way we use that language. I am presently, urgently, passionately hoping against hope that the New York Mets will somehow make the playoffs. It's profoundly unlikely, okay? But, but I hope they will. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, but I have no control over that. When I use those terms, I'm saying this is a sincere wish. I hope the Mets make the postseason, I hope it doesn't rain. But that's not the way the Bible uses the term. It's not wishful thinking, not hope for a pie in the sky, nor is it, as so many secular theorists uh, say, it's not psychological crutch for weak people, it's not the opium of the masses. Christian hope has burned brightly throughout the ages in every nation across the globe. Christian hope has been cherished by many of the world's most penetrating and brilliant scholars and philosophers. The Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Christian hope has satisfied the brightest minds in human history. It is not a trite thing. It's not a small thing. It's not a flimsy thing. Christian hope is spreading the world over, even as we sit here today comfortably and quietly in this room. Christian hope is being embraced by tens of millions in places where it was thought to be by human standards most unlikely. Tens of millions in the nation of China and India and Indonesia. Uh, Christian hope has penetrated into the darkest corners of Africa with alarming success and speed. Christian hope is being rekindled in places where it was thought to be uh, dead and passed over in countries like Germany. Christian hope is a much stronger thing uh, than wishful thinking. Man, I just can't wait to get my mansion in the sky, or I really hope that all this stuff about heaven is real. Wouldn't that be nice? But how are we going to understand, how should we understand Christian hope if we want to understand it according to the Bible? So the English word translated hope its a word translated from a Greek word, elpis, which appears some 53 times in the New Testament, and it appears in the book of Acts and Romans more than anywhere else. Well, after looking at all these references this week, I've tried to collate them together and put together this working definition of Christian hope. So it's not a perfect definition. It's a working definition. Hopefully, it's faithful to the Bible. So here's the, what I think is the biblical understanding of Christian hope. Christian hope is a sure confidence, a sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ producing assurance and eager expectation. I'll read that again. Christian hope is a sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ, producing assurance and eager expectation. Let's briefly break down that definition, three parts to that definition. First of all, hope is a sure confidence. It's not a wish. It's not the power of positive thinking. Hope is not choosing to believe against all odds and all facts. Hope, in the Bible at least, is understood to be a sure confidence based on certain knowledge. So if we're going to understand the Bible's use of that term, uh, we need to be willing to do some linguistic revision, at least to our modern parlance, our use of that word. Hope is sure in the Bible. Hope is certain knowledge. Hope is fixed and resolute. This will happen. God will deliver. God is strong. He will accomplish his purposes. Hope is sure confidence. Now the second part of that definition, what is that sure confidence in? It's sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. It's a sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. So if you look at the various references to hope in the New Testament, sometimes hope is set on a very specific, very particular, very narrow promise, like one singular promise that God has made in Christ. For example, the promise of uh, the resurrection, that we will rise again with Christ at the last day. So 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says this, Uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do not have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, like we too will rise again. He says, I don't want you to not have hope. I want you to have hope in this truth, this promise, that we're going to rise again with Christ. Hope in that passage, that instance, is set on one particular promise. But most often, hope is set more generally on a broad amalgam of promises, because God will keep all of His promises, and all of His promises are the grounds for Christian hope. We set our hope on a cluster of ideas or promises that are related to one another, Uh, So hope is characterized variously in the New Testament this way. Uh, Romans 5.2, Paul refers to the hope of the glory of God. Now what is that? What promise does Paul have in mind there? Probably not just one in particular. It's probably a whole cluster of promises (laughs) That we 're going to rise again, that we 're going to be given final salvation and eternal life, we will inherit eternal life forever with the Lord Jesus, God is going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and all that has gone wrong, and all the sin in this world will be undone, and all will be made right. Several different promises, I think, are included in that larger embracive category of the glory of God. Paul and Colossians one5 speak of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Colossians 1.23, the hope of the gospel Colossians 1:27, the hope of glory first Thessalonians 1 3 speaks of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ hope in our Lord Jesus Christ now now what promise is that hope set on well a lot of promises connected to the person of the Lord Jesus hope that he will forgive us of our sins hope that he will do as he has said he will never leave us or forsake us a hope that he will be with us unto the end of the age Uh, 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus, our hope. Titus 2.7, hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1.4, hope is equated to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What do I want you to see here? All I want you to see is that hope is broad and encompasses a whole array of promises, indeed, all of God's promises in Christ. We don't hope for just resurrection from the dead. We hope that we will be washed and cleansed of our sins. We hope for eternal life. We hope for an inheritance in heaven forever with God. We hope for the new heavens and the new earth. Hope is set on all of the promises of God in Christ. Now, these promises are ordinarily forward-looking, like we're looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises. I have hope in, sure confidence in, God fulfilling His word, uh, that He will finally save me. He will deliver me from these trials and tribulations. He will give me eternal life with His Son forever and all the people of God. I'm, I'm looking forward to the fulfillment of those promises. But at the same time, and don't miss this, hope is often settled on present tense fulfillment, like promises being fulfilled and being met in the present tense. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. I'm not just counting on him to be my advocate at the last day. I should know right now God will fulfill his promise in Christ and Jesus will stand as an advocate for me. He ever lives to make intercessions for us and he gives grace to help in time of need. Presently, if I'm in need, I can look to Jesus and I hope that he will fulfill his promise to me. I have a sure confidence that he will fulfill his promise to me in giving me grace to help in my time of need. There's a present tense aspect to this hope as well. We hope for the fulfillment of God's promises in the present. We also look forward to final fulfillment to all of God's promises. Hope is a sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. The reason I'm using that language, in Christ, at the end there, by Friday the definition was all of God's promises, and by Saturday morning was all of God's promises in Christ. I felt that had to be included. What do I mean by that language? When I say that We look for the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. I'm saying that God's promises are secured by, are accomplished through, and find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the verse for this, the classic text for this, is 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, referring to Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God His glory, biblical hope is Christian hope. It's hope that is in Christ. The promises are accomplished, secured by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I summarize Christian hope as being assured confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. It's not just hope that the promises were made. It's hope that they will be fulfilled. It's not. I hope that my Father in heaven will keep His word. No, it's it's a sure confidence they will be fulfilled. Uh, The motto of hope is he who promised is faithful. He will do it. He will fulfill his word. And I am given by God a sure confidence in the fulfillment of these promises. Third aspect of the definition, briefly, uh, hope produces assurance and eager expectation. Hope produces assurance and eager expectation. If you're still open to the book of Hebrews, let me ask you to turn back to Hebrews 6. Uh, It's worth saying at this point that faith and hope are not the same thing. Uh, Faith is believing something to be true, but hope is going beyond believing. Uh, Faith indeed produces hope, which is more than believing. Hope is expectation. Uh, Hope is assurance and waiting patiently on God and eagerly looking for fulfillment to the promise. So if you look at the various references to hope in the book of Hebrews, I think this point comes out uh, clearly. Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The full assurance of hope. That is to say, the full assurance that belongs to hope. Uh, the full assurance that hope produces. The full assurance that is attached to hope there's this aspect that, that in Christian hope, I have this sure confidence. I am assured. I eagerly expect the sure fulfillment of all of God's promises. If you look down at verse 17 and 18 of Hebrews 6, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, there's a popular netflix program and the the big line in that program if you've seen it friends don't lie is the line in that program well maybe or maybe not god does not lie which is a far more absolute and sure hope but verse 18 so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for god to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us assurance Expectation, holding fast, strong encouragement. God will do this. God will fulfill his word. His promises will last and will be kept. And then the final one, you don't need to turn there. We read it just a moment ago. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You can imagine holding something in an unsure, unsteady way. Your hands might be trembling. the image that is used here is hold fast, firm grip, without wavering assurance, expectation. That is what hope produces. This is the product of Christian hope. Hope is a sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ, producing assurance and eager expectation. That's the nature of Christian hope. And I'm tempted to stop and ask you at this point, are you acquainted with this kind of hope? A sure confidence, a sure confidence in all the promises of God that they will be fulfilled, producing expectation, assuredness. Are you holding fast to the promises of God? Well, what is the will of God for Christian people with respect to this hope? That's a an overview of what Christian hope is. Sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ producing assurance and eager expectation. But what's the will of God with respect to this hope? Like, What do we do do with that hope? Two things that the Apostle Paul says in two different letters to two different churches about a decade apart from each other, I think help us understand this. The first is a statement he makes. It's actually a prayer he gives in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18. There the Apostle Paul is praying for this church in Ephesus that he himself planted and he's now away from. And he says this in Ephesians 1 verse 18, he prays that the Ephesians would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He prays that they would know their hope, uh, that, that it wouldn't be just theoretical. Or, or They need to be thoughtfully, intelligently, experientially aware, cognizant of what their hope is is? What is the substance of my hope? I need to set my mind on that, think about that, know that. And then a second prayer that Paul gives is in Romans 15 verse 13, one of the most precious verses in the Bible. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we need to know our hope, that is, be intelligently aware of what our hope is in Christ, and where to abound in hope, which would indicate that hope can fluctuate by degrees. He's not just praying that they have hope, but that they would abound in hope. If I want grass to abound in my backyard, I water that grass, I nurture that grass, I plant seed, I pay attention, I don't neglect it, I stir it up. He wants hope to abound, he wants hope to grow in the experience of the Roman church. And I think we should apply this text to ourselves. If the apostle Paul came out of this closet stage right and was speaking to us about Christian hope, he'd say, I want you to do two things. I want you to do what I encourage that Ephesian church to do. I want you to know the hope of your calling. That is to intelligently and thoughtfully understand and be aware of the promises of God in Christ and to set your hope on those promises. And he would say, and my prayer is that you here, Emmanuel Church, this local congregation, would abound in that hope, would grow in that hope, that the fan, uh, excuse me, the flame would be fanned brighter and hotter. In this congregation, so having considered what Christian hope is—that is, that Christian hope is assured confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ, producing assurance and eager expectation—the question I want to ask now is. How can we see that second prayer of Paul answered? How can we as a church abound in Christian hope? This is a series of sermons on the church and on our church life together. And I've said the happy church is a church that abounds in hope. How can we as a church better abound in Christian hope? We don't want a dimly burning wick. We don't want a faint glimmer of hope. We want a blaze of Christian hope to emanate from our hearts and from this place. I want you to think of this. When you come to uh, the corporate gathering of God's people on Sundays like you've come this morning, or you come to small group, or you're coming to the home of another Christian person, you come with a log in your hand. Your job is to throw that log on the burning blaze of Christian hope. Every member contributing to this vision of a church that abounds in Christian hope, and I'm, I'm to help fan that into flame in this congregation. That's the answer to Paul's prayer. Every member contributing encouraging us in the sure confidence we have in the promises of God, our Christian hope. So how can we corporately, like as a church body, as a church family, as a manual church, stir one another up to greater measures of Christian hope? I have five encouragements, and I'll just be brief with each one. The first will be the longest, so take heart if it seems like I'm taking too long on the first one. Five encouragements. Number one, we should remind one another often of the promises of God in Christ, We should remind, call to mind often, the promises of God in Christ. If, if as I've said, hope is a sure confidence in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ, producing assurance and eager expectation, and if we as a people are to abound in hope, and if we are to encourage one another in Christian hope, then we must regularly remind each other of the promises of God. What is hope set on? It's set on God's promises in Christ. The promises of God are the fuel of Christian hope. If you find a Christian who's having trouble lighting the fires of Christian hope, pour the fuel of God's promises on that dimly burning wick, because that's the fuel that fans into flame Christian hope. It's God's promises And so we should often have on our lips, in our conversation with one another, our fellowship with one another, uh, our worship services and the time afterwards, we should often be speaking to one another the promises of God. Those promises should be on our lips often, and we should seek to speak them one another regularly. So I encourage you, make this part of your regular conversation. Uh, Memorize just five to ten of the many promises we have in the Bible. And purpose, I'm going to speak these words my brother and sister, I think this is true of every Christian. Uh, Every Christian struggles. Every Christian is discouraged at times. Every Christian needs to have hope inflamed in their hearts to a greater degree. That's not going to happen apart from words, apart from promises called to mind. The promises of God are the fuel of Christian hope. One instance of this, Romans 15 verse 4, for whatever was written in former days, speaking of the scriptures, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So don't just say to your brother and sister who's struggling, Well, I'm praying for you. That's a wonderful thing to say. Say that and do that. I'm praying for you. I mean, that, when someone tells me that in the midst of my struggles in life, I'm emboldened and excited and encouraged. This brother and sisters, I'm taking that go appear before the face of God for me. That encourages me. But say more than that. Tag on a promise of God. Brother, I just want to, he who promised is faithful. He has promised you will find grace to help in time of need. Don't forget, brother, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm praying for you. And just remember, God is a refuge. God is our strength. God's an ever-present help in trouble. You see, just calling to mind different texts, different verses, speak those promises to one another because they are the fuel of Christian hope. If I want my brother or sister to abound in hope, I have to direct them to the promises of God, which are the basis of hope. People are not helped to hope apart from words precious promises that God gives us in the Bible. So let us run hard as a church after this vision for church life, a church in which the members frequently rehearse, celebrate, and remind one another of the precious promises of God in Christ, which are the fuel of Christian hope. Just commit, I'm gonna be the sort of person, it's part of my vision, my calling, to regularly remind the Christians in my life about what God has promised in his word. And, and feel free to just be annoying with that. Just all the time, speaking the scriptures. I mean, is anyone really going to say, oh, here comes Jack, and you know him. He's just always going to talk about how God is good and faithful, and, and I better avoid him. We gravitate to those people. What about you? I, I surround myself with those people because I need encouragement. I need to be reminded of the promises of God. I'm prone to despair. No one's going to say, you better not have Jill over, because she was on and on about what God has promised in his word. I think you'll get a lot more dinner invitations if you're a hopeful person encouraging God's people to grow in the hope of the gospel. All right, now the second encouragement, and we'll move more quickly now. Second encouragement for us, if we're going to abound in hope, we have to remind each other of the promises of God in Christ. Secondly now, those of us who are gifted by God in this grace of Christian hope should exhibit and model hopefulness to the church body. I'll say that again. Those of us in this church who are especially gifted by God in the grace of Christian hope should exhibit and model hopefulness in the church body. Uh, So this may apply just to some here this point let me just ask you to soberly, realistically, and humbly examine yourself. Has God made you an especially hopeful person? Has He made you an especially hopeful person? I'm not saying, has He made you an optimist from a personality test or something like that? Not about my wishful thinking. No, but has God endowed you in a special way, an unusual way, with the grace of Christian hope, which is a sure confidence in the fulfillment of all the promises of God in Christ, producing assurance and eager expectation, has God, in a special way, endowed you with that grace? Do you find it natural, maybe even easy, to exude hope? You think of that first point, you're like, I just want to do that, I want to talk all the time about how God is faithful, and I'm trying to do that, and rehearsing the promises of God to my brothers and sisters. That's not most of us, but that is some of us. In John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian's friend was aptly named Hopeful. That's his name in the book. And how many times did Hopeful come alongside Christian to keep his foot from falling, to pick him up, to motivate him to go on in the pilgrim life? Hopeful has his name because he is specially endowed by God with this grace of Christian hope. So I ask, are you a hopeful Can you make it part of your life's purpose and mission in this church that I'm going to stir people up in the grace of Christian hope? God has helped me just humbly, soberly assess yourself. God has just made me to abound in this grace, and I'm going to help my brothers and sisters. I'm going to lead the way in this. I'm going to help to nurture a culture of hopefulness in the promises of God in this church as you assess the gifts and graces God has given you. Could it be part of his purpose for you in this body to help fan into flame Christian hope in the lives of hundreds of people over the next 30 years? Like, what have you purpose today? This is gonna be my contribution in a special way to Emmanuel Church. I'm gonna fan into flame the fires of Christian hope. I'm gonna be bent on this in small groups and in worship settings and in one-on-one conversations. I am gonna to call to mind the promises of God for my brothers and sisters. That's a life well lived. That's a contribution any of us can make to the health and life of this local church. All I'm saying is if we're to abound in Christian hope, we need models. I need models. I'm not especially gifted in this way. I need people to model for me. How can I encourage others in Christian hope? We need people to lead the way in exemplifying this grace for us. So I'm calling this morning for faithful examples in the church. Teach us how to be more hopeful exhibit and exude this grace of Christian hopefulness in a way that is bright and winsome and attractive and infectious to the life of this church. I just encourage you, by the way, if you know someone in this church that is a hopeful, maybe go to them after the service or send them a text later and say, I just want you to know that little part in the sermon that Alex preached this morning, it made me think of you. And I just encourage you, I want to identify the work of God's grace in your life, God has helped you in this way, and you can be used in this way, I think, to encourage this local church. Third, encouragement uh, as we seek to abound as a church in Christian hope, and this is for all of us, not just those who are gifted, all of us. We should be regularly on the lookout for those who are struggling in the grace of Christian hope. We should be regularly on the lookout. Our eyes should be open to those who are struggling in the grace of of Christian hope. Now, I believe every Christian will struggle in this grace at times. It's not like, well, I talked to so-and-so, they seem very hopeful, I never need to talk to them again. No, we need to be on the lookout. The, 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 The flame burns low in each of our hearts at times. We need to be thinking, considering, is this brother or sister struggling? How can I help them? They need my personal attention to help fan into flame Christian hope. Paul calls us to abound in hope, which means it's possible to be in want of hope at times in our Christian lives. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to pray that God would make us to abound in hope. We have to recognize the light burns low in our hearts at times, and when we notice this happening in the heart, life of a brother or sister in the church, we need to personally undertake to fan Christian hope back into flame. Many Christians, many Christians, Are languishing for a lack of Christian hope. Languishing. Like like if you think of it as a tank of gas, they're on E, they're running on fumes. Well, can you be that brother or sister who runs with that can of gas, that can of oil to throw onto the fire of Christian hope, to fan it back into the flame, the life of that struggling brother or sister? There are people who are struggling with assurance of salvation, or they're struggling with their identity in Christ, or they're finding it hard to be heavenly-minded, and they find that they are so fixated on the earthly and the carnal. Some are plagued with anxieties that crowd out Christian hope. Well, what do such people need? What they really need is a faithful brother or sister to come alongside them and encourage them, to help them to fix their gaze on the promises of God, like literally open the Bible, I want to show you something that God has said in His Word that you can claim for your own Christian life. Look at it. That's what such people need. They need help. They need hopeful to come alongside them and direct them to the promises of God. Now, I'm going to say this because I think this is true, because I think in our context, we're not conditioned to think this way, but I think this is true. Do you realize, Christian brother, sister, member of this church, do you realize that most of the shepherding care that goes on in the church is the responsibility and function of the church members. Most of the shepherding care in this church that happens on a day-to-day basis, it is the responsibility and function of the members. If someone is in a place of deep spiritual need, the solution is not to immediately send them to the pastors. Oh, you're struggling. You need to make an appointment with... Pastor Ben. That's that's not always the solution. Now, at times, that's the solution. At times, that should happen. Of course, there are times when we need to do that. There are also times when you need to personally undertake, like we talked about last week, to enter in meaningfully into the Christian experience of your brothers and sisters and help them. Here's this sister struggling with assurance Well, you know the Bible, you know the promises of God. Fan hope into flame. Take them to the scriptures. Well, I didn't go to seminary. I wasn't prepared for this. I wasn't equipped for this. Consider this, you're equipping for this. Call to mind the promises of God and speak them to that sister who is in need. The shepherding care, the spiritual care of this church is so often taken on by the members. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That is not in a letter given to Timothy or Titus. It's not a letter to a pastor. That's a letter to the church. Encourage the faint-hearted. Like, I need to think this is my responsibility to encourage the faint-hearted. Hebrews ten twenty-three, which we read, let us, the church, Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, let's all of us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Take thought, consider that this brother's hurting, this brother's struggling, this brother's lost sight of Christian hope. How am I going to help him? How am I going to stir him up to love and to good works? So if a brother or sister is struggling with doubt or discouragement or fear, Well, certainly the pastors of the church should seek to help that person, but the expectation is that the church body will rally around the person pouring the fuel of God's promises on the dimly burning wick of that brother or sister's Christian hope. Just think of like even the comments you might make in small group. Uh, Here's a brother or sister just talking about a hard trial, something that's difficult. Again, it's encouraging to say, I'm praying for you, but then say, hey, you know what? My wife and I went through that, and there was a particular promise that we found so encouraging. I want to share it with you. And I'm going to be praying that God helps you to set your faith, your hope on this promise. Remember, my friend, you're the God-appointed instrument in helping another brother or sister stay in the faith. You're the appointed means of keeping hope alive in the hearts of your brothers and sisters in the church. Find those who are struggling and speak the hope of God's promises to them. Fourthly, Fourthly, it will seem random. It's not. Fourthly, we should sing with exuberance, conviction, and volume about the hope of the gospel. We should sing with exuberance, conviction, and volume about the hope of the gospel. I don't say this for dramatic effect. But one of the reasons I'm still a Christian after about 20 years of following Christ is because I gather once a week with the Lord's people in the Lord's presence on the Lord's day, and I sing about the hope of the gospel with other Christians. Like that's one of the reasons I'm still in the faith, because I got hopeful surrounding me, singing audibly, loudly, with exuberance, with volume, the hope of the gospel. Congregational singing, like the singing we enjoyed earlier in this service, has such power, such potency in fortifying Christian hope. I mean, look at the songs we sang. Everything we were singing about was about God and His goodness and His promises and His faithfulness. I mean, how can I help but be encouraged to hope? How can I not be encouraged? When singing lines like, He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. How can I not be helped to hope when singing before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love and ever lives and pleads for me. Or hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He's with me to the end. How can I not be helped to hope? When singing those promises back to God. But it's not just singing them that is encouraging to me. It's hearing the voices of my brothers and sisters sing those promises. Because if we're honest, sometimes we come here not really feeling like singing. I didn't come in here with a brightly burning blaze of Christian hope, but she did, and he did, and I'm encouraged to hope. As I hear God's people singing out the promises of God. It's not just the subject matter of the songs that are so encouraging. It's when I see and when I hear my fellow pilgrims around me singing the songs of the redeemed. I see this brother singing through the loss of a job. I see this sister singing through fertility struggles. I see this new Christian singing through his struggles with sin and doubt and discouragement. And I see this older Christian holding fast to Christ in song. Through the assault of old age, I hear loudly in my ears the shouts of God's people who sing songs of hope in the midst of life's trials and storms, and I am stirred to hope in God. And I'll just say, just as loud, exuberant, resolute, congregational singing can stir hope in the heart of a believer, tepid, half-hearted, quiet singing can suck the hope right out of the room. Just suck the hope right out of the room. I so want our church to be marked by exuberant, hope-filled, hope-stirring congregational singing. How does a church abound in hope? One of the ways is every member singing loudly, audibly, sincerely, and with joy and gladness in the promises of God. Hope in the New Testament, if you look up Elpis in the New Testament. It's often connected to rejoicing. If You see that word, elpis, in the Greek New Testament. It's often in close proximity to the Greek word, or one of the Greek words for joy. Because Christian hope produces joy, not anxiety over an uncertain outcome, but rather rejoicing. Because though the world is so discouraging, so the, though the circumstances of life are so difficult, and though they press us and beat us down, The future is bright because of the sure promises of God, and that should come to expression in our singing. The evangelical church in America needs to hear this badly. There is one command in the New Testament with respect to music. One command. It has nothing to do with guitars or drums or organs or pianos. It's one command. To sing. That's the only imperative in the New Testament with respect to music and we're to sing to three audiences. We're to sing to God. We're to sing to ourselves, making melody in our hearts. There's an internal audience. My soul, put your hope in God. And we're to sing to one another. Ephesians 5, 19, and Colossians 3 as well. Singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when you sing on Sunday mornings, you're not just singing for yourself, you're not just singing for God. You're singing for your brothers and sisters in the church, and you're seeking to remind them, to stir them up to Christian hope. The fifth and final thing, and I'll close with this, fifth and final encouragement. The question we're asking is, how do Christians abound in hope? And this is going to sound like an encouragement or something like that, but, but it's also a means of abounding in hope. We should exhibit hope to a hopeless world. We in the church should exhibit hope to a hopeless world. I'll remind you of 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer or a, an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. He says, always be ready. Always be prepared to give an answer, an explanation. The word is apologia, apology, a defense, a reason for the hope that is within you. It's the hope at least in this text, it's the hope that prompts the question. You see that? Give a reason, give a defense, give an answer to the question about the hope that lies within you. In other words, we are to so exude and exhibit Christian hope that people unacquainted with that hope are prompted to ask, now what is it about you? What is making you so hopeful Why do you seem not to be as discouraged as I am about the course of our democracy? Why are you not as discouraged about life expectancy rates in the United States? Why are you not so beaten down and and, and disheartened by the healthcare crisis? Why, Why are you so different? And we're prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have in us. And that answer includes saying, I'm actually not different from you at all, but Christ is. And he's my hope. It's his promises. That's the difference. I am very, very optimistic about life expectancy in the new heavens and the new earth. That's registering with just some of you now. <laughs> not optimistic about life expectancy in the United States. I'm not optimistic that the suicide rate is going to go down but you could wish that everyone who took their own life would have heard about this hope. There is light that penetrates into darkness. Jesus came as the light of the world. He offers to us the hope of the gospel. And what is that? It's the hope, not just that we'll have eternal life and we'll be in heaven forever, the most wonderful promise that we set our hope on is that our sins will be forgiven that though our sins be as scarlet as we sang earlier where is scarlet my transgression it shall be as white as snow by the blood and bitter passion of Christ there is hope for a hopeless world it's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that hope is boundless and that hope is offered in sincerity to every soul who hears the gospel If you receive the Lord Jesus Christ today, turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, and if you embrace the hope that is offered by the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, you will be saved. You will be justified in the sight of a holy God. And you will be changed and born again by the Spirit of God. And you will be adopted into the family of God. And you will be granted eternal life. And you will inherit the new heavens and the new earth forever in sinless paradise with the Lord Jesus. That's the hope of the Gospel. The hope of the gospel includes this call. Come. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, you who have looked to opioids to silence the pain and the darkness and the hopelessness. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. There is hope for a hopeless world, but it's not found outside of Christ. But the wonderful news is. The hope that is in Christ is offered to the world. And I tell you, as a minister of the gospel, if you come to the Lord Jesus today, turning from sin, believing that he is the son of God and a savior for the world, you will have your sins forgiven. And we'll take part in this hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the hope of the gospel, the hope of an inheritance forever with the Lord Jesus. We celebrate and call to mind the promises of resurrection and of eternal life. Lord, you have said in your word, it is your will, that we would know the hope of our calling. So call to mind now, even as we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments the promises of God which are the fuel of hope. May we know thoughtfully, existentially, convincingly, the grounds of our hope. And also, Lord, may you help us as a local church. May you encourage us in our feeble efforts to grow and to abound in this grace and this virtue of hopefulness. We have every reason, every reason on the foundation of your word to be a hopeful people. Make it to be so in the context of this community of your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.